This is Dr. Nabil Qureshi. He's a former devout Muslim who was convinced of the truth of the gospel through the historical reasoning and spiritual search for God. Since his conversion, he's dedicated his life to spreading the gospel through teaching, preaching, writing, and debating. He holds an MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School, an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola, and an MA from Duke University in Religion. Lord God, you are a creator of the universe. You have planned from before time began that we would all be here in this room today. You've brought us here for a purpose, Lord. And so we invite you to come and be here with us all. God, we know where we gather, you are there also. And so we ask you to be here so profoundly present amongst us that you are palpable, that we can feel you. And that you would work in our hearts to do whatever it is you wish us to do. Lord, I pray specifically for me now that you would take me out of the equation, that you would just use me as a vessel for your word. God, that you would open up and prepare people's hearts and ears to hear the message that you would have them hear. Lord, that you would cultivate their hearts to be fertile ground for the word that you would plant in it. Lord, I pray that today people's lives would change because of the work of a miracle-working God. We pray this because we know who you are. You are a God who changes the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you some background uh, on my life. Um, as Dr. Tour said, I was born Muslim. Um, I was raised Muslim in the United States. And so for me, my way, my worldview was one that was very clearly defined um, by the Islamic perspective. And I loved Islam. I mean, my parents had taught me to be a Muslim to the nth degree. I'm going to put this rubber band away, otherwise I'll keep playing with it. I'm going to put this paper clip away too. Shoot you guys an accident. Um... So for me, religion was something that that really meant a lot. It mattered to me. And Islam had a good set of answers. Now, the question for me ultimately was, who is God? And my answer right off the bat was, God is Allah. Muhammad is his messenger. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. The proclamation that made me Muslim was my foundation. It was the way I saw the world. And to me, it gave a legitimate set of answers. Now, my mom, my dad, when they came from Pakistan, they were very, very devout. My mom was actually the daughter of a Muslim missionary. So even though she was Pakistani, she was born in Indonesia because that's where her father was when he was preaching Islam. And she was actually also the daughter of a missionary. Um, Her father, uh, I'm sorry, she was a granddaughter of a missionary. Her grandfather spent his whole life preaching Islam in Uganda. So, he was a doctor too. So he was a preacher and a healer, but he was preaching and healing in the name of Islam and Allah. And so when I was born and raised, I had this very strong view of Islam, and my parents were devout, and I was raised to be devout, and I loved Islam. And Islam taught me something that I feel a lot of people in the West generally believe as well, and that is that if you... Do more good deeds than bad deeds as you go along in life, then God will ultimately say you are a good person and you deserve heaven. And so for me, that was my worldview. That was my perspective. Um, And I was raised with that. It didn't matter where we lived, too. Uh, My father joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, He actually came here. My dad, he came here um, with nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, He came because in certain areas of Pakistan, our sect of Islam was being highly persecuted. 
Uh, within Islam, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of division in Islam. It's not a monolithic faith. Not everyone believes the same thing. Um, there, there is a wide uh, spectrum of beliefs in Islam. Our specific sect was being highly persecuted. And so for that reason, my father came here to the United States, also for opportunity for my, my sister and me, even though we hadn't been born yet. He wanted to give his children the opportunity to advance. And so he comes to the United States. And he actually came the day Elvis died. Um, and so this is how much he knew about the U.S. He lands, he looks at the newspaper. It says, the king is dead. And he's like, I, I just, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I thought they were a democracy, and it says the king is dead. I don't know. So, so that's kind of how my father came to the United States. So he just had, he had no idea. But he raised me and my sister very devoutly in Islam because he knew that the West is Christian. That's what he was taught. That's how he was seeing the world around him. And so, in general, Muslims, when they come to the West, they see uh, the promiscuity on television, they see the way people act on TV, and they impute that to Christianity, because they think it's a Christian nation. And unfortunately, we very rarely ever reach out to the Muslims and give them a different perspective. Um, there was actually a survey done a few years ago that uh, 90% of Muslims uh, who are immigrants into the West have never been invited into an American home. So they are just left with this perspective that that's how the West is. So when I was being raised, my sister and I were being raised, we weren't just taught to be good Muslims. We were taught to stay away from Christians because they destroy things. They turn, they turn society into uh, just a depraved, destitute nation. And so we weren't just raised Muslim, we were galvanized against Christianity. And part of that was to train me against the gospel. So as I'm growing up, my parents aren't just teaching me, hey Nabil, be a good Muslim, read the Quran every day, you know, pray your salat every day. They weren't just teaching me to be a good Muslim, they're also telling me, this is Christianity and this is what's wrong about Christianity. So I had whole books I would read about Christianity and about how wrong it was. For example, uh, my parents would tell me, that if anyone ever shared the gospel with me, turn it around and ask them why they believe what they believe about Jesus. I'll give you an example. When I was in high school, I was in 11th grade. Um, I was studying Latin. I lived in Virginia at the time. And the girl in front of me, um, when the teacher stepped out for a minute, she turned around and she says, Nabil, do you believe in Jesus? And I'm thinking, okay, this girl's got to be crazy because we're in the middle of Latin class and she's asked me about Jesus. Um, later on, I figured out she was on fire for the Lord, but often that looks like you're crazy, but that's okay. <laughs> totally fine. So she, so she was asking me, do you know Jesus? And my response to her is, actually, yeah, I do know Jesus. The Quran teaches that Jesus is virgin born. The Quran teaches that Jesus could heal the deaf and heal the blind, and raise the dead, and cure the leprous. The Quran teaches that Jesus is the Messiah who will come back at the end of times. And right around now, Jesus is kind of, I mean, uh, Betsy kind of had wide eyes. She had no idea that this is what Muslims thought. But then I, then I gave her the final, the final blow. I said, but Jesus is not God. And she said, no, Nabil, that's, that's the most important part. Jesus is God. And I said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe Jesus is God? And she said, absolutely. And I said, is that important to you? She said, yeah. Why? Why do you believe Jesus is God? 
Now, I, I don't think the New Testament is trustworthy, Betsy. I think the New Testament has been corrupted. It doesn't say today what it once said. But I'm going to grant you the New Testament right now. Let's pretend the New Testament is still actually accurate. And let's pretend that it actually has Jesus' words in it. Where does he say, I am God? So notice, I've just granted her the whole... I'm just, going to, I'm just asking her, why do you think Jesus is God? And she thought for a moment... Keep in mind, this is a girl who's on fire for the Lord. She thought for a moment and she said, well, Jesus says the Father and I are one, doesn't he? I said, yeah, he does say the Father and I are one, but you're quoting the book of John. And in the book of John, Jesus makes it very clear what kind of unity he's talking about. He's not saying the Father and I are one person, because later on he says to his disciples, I pray that you would be one, just as I am one with the Father. He's not praying for them to be one big being. He's praying for them to be unified in spirit. For them to work together just as he works together with the Father. That's what he's praying. That's what he's saying. He's not saying he's God. In fact, if you want to quote Jesus' words, how about when Jesus says to someone who asks him, when is the end of times? This is Mark chapter 13. Someone says to Jesus, when is the end of times? Jesus says, I don't know when the end of times is. No one knows. Not the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. You're telling me God doesn't know when something is? In fact, he's actually separating himself from God here. He says no one knows, not the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. He's separating himself from God, isn't he? He walks through crowds. He doesn't know who touches him when he's walking through a crowd. Someone asks him to, to heal. And he, it says in, in Mark chapter 3 that he could do no miracles in Galilee while he was there. Not that he did do, but he could do no miracles in Galilee. If you want to quote the Gospel of John, Betsy, how about you quote where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Right around now, Betsy had just like deer in headlights. Look at her face. And so I said to her, if you want to know Jesus, ask me about Islam. And that's how I would regularly turn people who would try to share the Gospel with me onto Islam instead and really confuse them about their faith because the truth was they didn't know why they believed what they believed. Yeah, they believed it fervently, but they didn't know why. They had no foundation for their faith. Same thing with the Trinity. In Islam, we're taught to not say three. Okay, that's what the Quran says over and over. Do not say three. God is one. He is independent and besought by all. He has no children. He cannot beget anyone. God is one. And if you say three, it would be better for you to desist. That's what the Quran says. In fact, the Quran says that anyone who says God is Jesus will be bound to hell where they will live forever. Chapter 5, verse 72 of the Quran. So I would ask people a simple question. I would, I would ask them, do you believe in the Trinity? Yeah, hey, you know, I could do this here. How many of you believe in the Trinity? A lot of you are afraid now. <laughs> I don't know anymore. Um, Good, I'm glad. You guys bold. You raised your hand. Okay. What is the Trinity? Right? A lot of times I'd ask people if they believed it, they would say yes. And then I would say, does it matter to you? Is it important? And most people would say, yeah, it's so important that if I didn't believe the Trinity, I'd be a heretic. And then I'd say, what is it? And generally people would start talking about eggs or water. <laughs> but they wouldn't be able to tell me what the Trinity was. What is three in one? What does that mean? 
Most people did not have any answer at all. And so for me, in Islam, as a Muslim, I, what my parents had taught me, what my family had taught me, was that the Trinity was veiled polytheism. That essentially Christians are all polytheists. They want to worship Jesus, but they know God is one. The universe testifies the fact that God is one, but they want to worship Jesus. So they say God is three in one. It's polytheism. But they're trying to make it sound like monotheism. And if you ask them to explain it, they'll say, it is a divine mystery. We just believe it with faith. That's a cop-out. And so for me, when I was growing up as a Muslim, I wasn't just Muslim. I was trained against Christianity. And to me, Christianity made no sense because no one could explain it to me. And as I went along, I would challenge as many Christians as I could in their faith. And so I'm here today, you know, at the request, the invitation of Dr. Tour. And I just want to make sure that we can answer this question. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? Because our society is beginning to challenge us on that very issue. Look all around us right now. Every single friend that you have that's not a Christian on Facebook, I guarantee you they got a little equal sign as their personal profile on Facebook. Why? And why shouldn't we join them? Right? Why shouldn't we revel in, in the joy of equality? Isn't that what our nation is built on? Shouldn't we allow homosexuals to get married? Why not if we say no? And if we stand firmly on the Bible and we wave the Bible, but we can't connect the Bible to our lives, we're going to look like we're waving a flag of surrender. And we will be a legitimate object of ridicule. Because we cannot connect what we believe in our spirit to the world we live in. And that's going to create a problem for our generation. Our generation especially. Because we do have, whether or not we say something, by the way we live, we do have a foundation. Now whether it's strong or shaky is another thing. Some of us have built our house on the rock and some of us have built it on the sand. But we all have a foundation. What is it? Is it what we proclaim? Is that how we walk? If we say Jesus, why Jesus? And if we don't have that foundation, we cannot answer the question to other people when they ask us. Why do we stand against abortion? Why do we stand against euthanasia? Why do we give people, all people, a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Why? What is all that about? How are these truths self-evident? What does all this mean? What is our foundation? Once we are able to answer the question, why Jesus? Then we will be able to stand under the pressure that comes from the society around us. And it comes constantly. But not only will we be able to stand, if we actually walk in that, and we pursue Christ in that, then all of a sudden the gospel message becomes attractive. Then all of a sudden, evangelism doesn't become this weird thing where you go up to someone and say, like, a script. You know, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus? You know, like that kind of... It kind of seems contrived every now and then because it's not from our core. It's not from who we are. But if we're able to answer the question and live in that answer, then we can evangelize, then we can witness from our very being just by walking into a room or just by being who we are. We can share the good news. Changes everything. So why? Why Jesus? I'll tell you why for me first. And then let's explore some other avenues. As I was going along in my life as a Muslim, I realized when I got to college, so just about where most of us are, how many of you are grad students? Did, did I ask this question? I did ask this question. I got a bad memory, sorry. Like five of us, great. Um, 
So as I was going along in undergrad, I quickly realized I had stepped away from my family. Now was the time for me to determine whether or not the faith that I walked in, which was Islam, was my own, or whether it was the one that my parents had given me. All of a sudden, the five daily prayers that I had prayed my whole life, the Quran that I had read every day my whole life, was not something I had to read for the sake of my family. It was my own choice. Do I continue doing this? Do I continue believing this or not? And for me, the answer was obviously yes, because it's given me a solid foundation. But I wanted to test it first. I wanted to test and see if it was true. And part of the way this happened was I started testing Christianity at the same time. I ran into a friend who um, actually was able to start answering a lot of the questions about Christianity I was bringing up. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, We were actually at a, um, I was on the public speaking and debate team, and uh, we were at a uh, debate tournament. And my friend, uh, that night, after we'd gotten back to our hotel room, he pulled out a Bible and started reading it. Now, I can't explain to you just how flabbergasted I was by the fact that someone would actually read the Bible in their free time. Because I'd never heard of it, for one. No one had ever said, hey, I read the Bible last night, and, you know, no no one had ever said that to me. I'd never seen it. But I also thought, because of what people had told me as a Muslim, I also thought that everyone knew the Bible had been changed over time. That people had kind of put some books together hundreds of years after Jesus. We've all heard this. I mean, how many of you have read Da Vinci Code? A few of you. Okay, good. I'm glad that a lot of you are not focusing on (laughs) the bad stuff. Um, How many of you watched the movie? Okay, the same ones who read the book. I see that. (laughs) See that? I see what you did there. Um, But yeah, so the Bible has been heavily challenged um, by our society, and I just assumed everyone knew the Bible was corrupt. And so I see my friend David reading the Bible, and I said, you realize that book you're reading is not trustworthy? And he closes the book, and he says, what do you mean? And I said, let me me explain it to you. First, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. When he lived and walked, he spoke Aramaic. We still have traces of his speech in Aramaic. But the earliest church spoke Hebrew, and then when the Bible was actually written, it was written in Greek. The New Testament, that is. So by the time we have the New Testament written, we've got a translation of a translation of Jesus' words. I'm guaranteeing you, things are lost in translation. And then by the time it actually lasts throughout, throughout the span of the ages in, in, the, in the church history, that, that Bible was in Latin. I mean, that was the Latin Vulgate. So you've got a translation of a translation of a translation until it finally gets to German. And from German it comes to English, which is when we get the KJV. So that's why we have the KJV and then the ESV and the NIV, the RSV, the who knows what V. You've got so many versions of the Bible. How do I know which one is actually Jesus' words? I had shared that spiel with a lot of people and most people didn't know even how to begin to respond. But David explained to me, first he said, Nabil, when you spoke to your mother a few minutes ago over the phone, did you speak to her in English? I said, no. He says, but when you told me what she said, you told me in English. Was that a bad translation? I was like, no. (laughs) He says, people who are multilingual can take something said in one language and put it in another just fine without losing the message at all. And that's exactly what the New Testament authors were. They were multilingual. The disciples were multilingual. They could hear Jesus in Aramaic. They could speak in Hebrew and Greek as well quite often, and that's what they did. They wrote in Greek. And the Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have in our possession today are so great in number. We have over 5,500 
Greek New Testament manuscripts that we can accurately reconstruct the New Testament with 100% certainty of its message. Its message has not been changed. And let's say we didn't have any of the Greek New Testament manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Latin, Coptic, Syriac, other early manuscripts of the New Testament from which we are certain of what it says. We haven't lost its message. I looked at David and I said, David, you're making this stuff up. It's like, there is no way this is true because no one's ever told me this before. And he's like, you want to bring it? I'm like, it's being brought right now. <laughs> and so we just started going through all this stuff together. We started looking at the New Testament. We spent a year studying the, the historical basis of the New Testament. I mean, this wasn't something we did overnight. But through it all, we became friends. David and I became close friends because what mattered to him mattered to me. You know, what, what I believe that God is important and that reality is important, that mattered to me, it mattered to him too. So even though I'm a devout practicing Muslim trying to turn him into a Muslim, and he's a devout practicing Christian trying to turn me into a Christian, we became best friends. Okay, and let me tell you this as just a quick aside. When you are going to share the gospel with someone's life, and the gospel says, pick up your cross and follow me. Right? You have to be ready to lay down your life for the sake of Christ. If you're asking someone to put their life down for God's sake, it better be the case that that person knows they can trust you. It better be the case that that person and you are close friends. Because otherwise that burden is too heavy a, a burden to carry. Your relationship must be able to be strong enough to carry the burden of the gospel message if you expect them to hear it. And ours was. We were able to, to, to talk about these things for a long time. And, and I realized after about a year of studying this stuff that there really was no model for the New Testament to have been corrupted. Um, I, I don't know if you, you know how it happened, but people would write letters, people would write books, like the first gospel that was written, the Gospel of Mark, it would be written, and then people would take it and then it would just copy and they'd spread it. They'd copy it a bunch and spread it out to other churches. They would copy and spread it, and they would copy and spread it. How could someone then come up and say, oh, I want to take the Gospel of Mark and change it? You couldn't, because it's been copied and spread everywhere. And if somebody changed one, or even if they changed all of them in one location, theoretically speaking, how would they change the rest of them? They couldn't. It wasn't possible. There was no central control over any of the works of the New Testament until the 4th century. But we have many copies of the Bible from before that. And so we know that it hasn't been changed, it hasn't been altered, it hasn't been corrupted. And when I realized this, I said, okay, fine, I accept that the New Testament is accurate today, still. But where does Jesus say he's God? Now, to a Muslim, this is probably the most important question about Christianity. It's the most blasphemous question about Christianity, that people could worship a man. Right, that's blasphemy, uh, according to all Muslims. And it should be to all Christians, too, if you worship a man. If... That man is not God. So how do we know Jesus is God? Where did he say he's God? Uh, this isn't a, a session on the deity of Christ. Um, I would love to talk about it more if we have uh, Q&A, or I'm going to hang out at Dr. Tour's place afterwards if you have questions. But I'll tell you this. I've ultimately studied that question from that day, from 2001, on to today. That's still a pursuit of mine. That's what I focused my graduate degree on at Duke, was what does Jesus actually claim historically? What do we find at the earliest level? And what I'm telling you is, generally speaking, like what Betsy did, people turn to a specific gospel to talk about Jesus' deity. What gospel do you think that is? John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. Okay, so John 1, 1, right? <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So here's God, here's the Word. The Word is with God, but the Word was God. So right there in the beginning, you've got God who's kind of multiple in person. And then it says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And verse 18 says that no one has seen God. Only the begotten God has seen Him. So, John chapter 1 does make clear that Jesus is God. But a lot of scholars, and a lot of Muslims as well, say that John came later than the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Which is true. John is the last of the four Gospels. And if Christianity proclaims that Jesus is God from the very beginning, we ought to see it in the earliest Gospels, ought we not? Right? How is it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written and didn't say anything about Jesus being God, then all of a sudden John comes up and says Jesus is God, and we believe Jesus is God from the beginning? Does that make any sense? So we have to see the deity of Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that's what I wanted to see as a Muslim. And when I studied Mark in depth, I want to tell you this verse, and I'm going to pray that you guys will study this verse on your own. We don't have time to talk about it together right now. But when I studied Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Mark chapter 14, verse 62, that is the climax of Jesus' message. Okay, everything in the book of Mark points up to Mark 14, verse 62. And Jesus makes two, maybe three claims about himself in Mark 14, 62 that ties in together the whole gospel, everything that's been happening from Mark 1, 1 all the way to the end. It all climaxes right there. And what Jesus is basically saying in this one verse is, I am the God of Moses, I am the God of Daniel, and I am the God of David. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He powerfully proclaims his deity three times over in this one verse. So I read this as a Muslim and I realized, wait a minute, everything that I have been taught could be wrong. Everything I had been taught as a Muslim could be wrong because I had always been taught Jesus never claimed to be God. And I had always been taught the New Testament had been corrupted. And now I'm seeing evidence which may show me that everything I taught could be wrong. And I'm asking you guys that today too. Have you considered, just you got you got to be able to probe these things. Have you considered that what you have been taught, I don't know if you were born Christian or if you're raised Christian, or you started coming to this church recently, or if you're considering becoming Christian, but have you considered that what you've been taught could be wrong? And have you tested that foundation? And so I said to myself, what is it? What is the Christian message? I want to know what it is. Let's start from the ground up. How can I test this? How can I know whether it's true? Because the claims here are very important. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say? It says, If Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. If Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. So what does that tell us about the Christian message? What is it built on? The resurrection. Exactly. Jesus' resurrection. That is the core of the Christian faith, the Christian claim. And Paul is actually saying something here. He's saying if this is not a historical event that happened in history, if for real, for real... Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Our faith is in vain. And we are most of all to be pitied because we believe a lie. As Christians, our message is pretty astounding. Okay? 
and, and this is something that I saw in medical school. As I was in medical school studying, this is what I saw in grad school at Duke, was that we are teaching our students something, and I'm guaranteeing you we're learning it at Rice too, which is that this world here, and I'm talking about the worldview that's generally being taught at universities, this world is here somehow by accident. Okay, It's just kind of here. And we just kind of have developed. There's no purpose for us from before time. And there's no purpose for us after we die. We're just here. And so while we're here, let's learn how to live as meaningful lives as we can. Given that our lives actually have no ultimate meaning, let's make meaning for ourselves. Let's find meaning. And if that comes through experience, like music, sex, drugs, let's pursue that. Because that's all the meaning we can derive from it. Or if the meaning comes from from helping people, if that makes you feel good about yourself, helping others, then do it. Because it makes you feel good about yourself. Because ultimately, we're only here for a short period of time till we die, and that's it. That's the end. So get as much stuff as you can. Race to your grave. Because that's where it ends. That's what we're being taught. Let me unpack that a little bit more academically, critically, because that's not what they're actually saying. What they'll teach you in the classes is that the universe started, we don't know how, but out of nothing came the universe. A big bang, probably. Who knows what caused the bang, you know? But it just banged, and all of a sudden you got a universe. Okay, and then things started slowly evolving. It just so happened that our galaxy, the Milky Way, had a specific spot in it that was perfect for producing life. Okay? The little arms of the spiral galaxies, you know, there's radiation that comes out of those stars, and there just happens to be a nook that's perfectly far away from all the radiation to, to, to support life. And in that nook, we happen to have a single solar system, a single star solar system that's just perfect for the orbit of, of, around the sun to create life on the Earth. And we have an asteroid belt there in that solar system that just happens to be perfect to shield debris, cosmic debris, from hitting this one planet so that planet can build life. There happens to be a moon just the right size to allow the tides to come in and out to start supporting life in the ocean. It's, it just happens to be that all these things happened. It just happens to be that that planet is not so far away from the sun that it freezes and so close to the sun that everything melts. It just happens to be that way. That's what we're taught. By the way, just looking at the cosmic factors that are involved in letting the earth produce life makes me think it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a theist. I don't have faith in, in random chance. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to have faith in random chance, but I have faith in a person. That makes a lot more sense. Anyhow, so we start looking at the earth, and what they're teaching us now is that, okay, the universe happened by chance, and then somehow, life started out of nothing. Do you realize we focus a lot on evolution, the idea of evolution? I'm not speaking against or for theistic evolution, evolution of any sort like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Just the sheer fact of going from not life to life, there has never been a viable explanation for it. Nothing close. Scientists have been looking. They are looking. The closest they came was the Miller-Urey experiment in the mid-20th century, and that was debunked by Miller himself. He later said that we used false starting points and we, we didn't uh, report the data the way we should have. He said that himself. It doesn't work. There is no explanation for how we could have gone from not life to life. None. But the Academy would have us believe that somehow it happened. We don't know how. 
but somehow it happened. And then we started from one-celled organisms. And we don't know how those just happened to be perfectly able to replicate and divide, binary fission, what have you, however it happened. It ultimately began to evolve, and slowly they turned into vertebrates and mammals, and those mammals turned into students at Rice. <laughs> That's how they believed everything happened. That's what they want us to believe. Now, let's explore that for a second. What if that is true? What if what they're teaching us, expressly sometimes, is true? That means you are a cosmic mistake. You just happen to be here. You're a byproduct of the universe's chemical and physical reactions. That's all you are. What does that get us to start thinking about ourselves? More importantly, what does it start getting us to think about the people around us? If I'm just a purposeless lump of carbon, what does that make you? And if I can take advantage of you, if I can exploit you, if I can use your purposeless existence to my experiential benefit, then why not? You don't mean anything. You have no more value than, than this podium on which, I, on which I rest right now. That's what all this means. And it means that when we go in life, and if we have any kind of difficulty whatsoever, any kind of difficulty, I can just, the people here in this room, I mean, we, we have, what would I say, like 60, 70 people in this room right now. That means a few of you are wrestling with bulimia. That means a few of you are wrestling with depression. One or two of you may have even been raped. This message tells us that you are without hope. And what's happened to you has happened for no reason and there's no ultimate benefit that can, happen, that can come out of it. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, all of a sudden, everything changes. That means that this physical world and everything that the scientists who, who are not allowing for a theistic explanation, everything that they're telling us, there's something wrong, that there's something more to this world. It means that when people physically die, they still have a life afterwards, that there's something more than the material that holds their being together. And that more is where our meaning actually is derived from. That's where our value is derived from. If Jesus is raised from the dead, it shows us that there's hope in the afterlife. The suffering you're going through here can be used for the benefit, ultimately, of this cosmic story that goes beyond the physical and the material. It tells us that what you're suffering through right now, just as it was said in the sermon this morning, that that suffering can be turned into glory, everlasting and eternal glory. How does that work? I can explain that to you, but that's how powerful the Christian message is. It takes death and turns it into life. Literally. And in every metaphorical sense that gives our lives meaning and purpose. That is a message worth exploring. That's a message worth testing. Because if it's false, if Jesus did not rise and our faith is in vain, then guess what? We're left at square one. Life is pointless. Might as well shoot up and go have sex until we die because that's all the experience we can get out of this life.
But if Jesus is risen, and we can be sanctified into his image, and there is a perfect image of a man, that being Jesus himself, that we can strive towards, then we have a goal, then we have a normative being that we should work towards, and that would mean something for our lives. Then when people say, strive to be like Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, turn to Jesus, lean on Jesus, all of a sudden that has real meaning. It's not just a platitude that we tell ourselves. It has meaning. It has eternal value. So it's one or the other. Either the Christian message is nothing or it's everything. There is no middle ground here. And if we're walking in this middle ground, that means that we're saying one thing and believing another. Okay? We're saying with our minds and our mouths the message of Christ and God, but we're walking in this world that has kind of dampened our spirits as, as with a wet blanket and taught us that God isn't actually real. And when we pray for one another and healing for one another, we don't actually believe that. It's just stuff we're saying. We don't actually expect God to cure your cancer. I'll pray for you, sure. But I don't really think he's going to do it. You see how the secularism can just douse us in our spiritual grounding, but that's if we're not grounded. But if, as Christ says, Matthew chapter 7, that our house is built on the rock and we do the things that God has told us to do, then we will stand. So have we tested this? Have we seen why Jesus? As a Muslim, I looked and I said, okay, this Christian message is powerful. I understand it. But how do I know it's true? How do I know it's true? How do I know it's one and not the other? And I looked. And in there, in the Bible, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is Baptist church. You guys got this memorized. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. As a Muslim, I looked at that. And I said, there are three things here. And these three things are the core of the Christian message. Number one, Jesus' lordship. Okay, Jesus is God. He is Lord. That's key to the Christian faith. Number two, that he died on the cross for our sins. And number three, that he was raised from the dead as the firstborn of the resurrection. These three things define our Christian faith. We can unpack them a bit more. But notice this. All three of those things are historically investigable. You can actually look into history and say, did this happen or not? Now, the first one, Jesus dying on the cross, that's something that would have happened in history. Did he die on a cross or not? If someone gets you know, executed, we can look into records and verify whether or not that actually happened. Number two, whether someone raised from the dead or not. That's something that would have happened in history. It's not something that we're just telling ourselves. He either rose from the dead or he didn't. And number three, did he claim to be God or not? Which we talked about briefly. Now, by the way, someone can just walk into a room and claim to be God. I'm not about to believe him. Um, that's actually happened. I've seen people claim to be God. When I was working in, the, in, in my uh, medical school, um, you know, in the psychiatry ward, there are plenty of people who told me they were God. Um, and that's where they belonged. <laughs> Um, they were getting good treatment. Okay? So, um, there are people who claim to be God. But if that person says, no, I'm not crazy, watch this, they're going to kill me, and three days later, I'll be raised from the dead. That's how I'm going to prove my claim to you. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now if that person actually does get killed and then raises from the dead, if anyone, if I'm going to listen to anyone about the afterlife, it's going to be that guy. Because <laughs> he's been there. So, 
so that's, that's why we can give Jesus the place he deserves in our lives. Because the resurrection proves his claims. The resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It proves it all to us. And that's why the disciples weren't going out in Acts chapter 2 and saying, Hey, do you want to have a better life? If you do, learn, lean on Jesus. That's not the gospel message. Okay, the gospel message was, Jesus Christ, this man Jesus, has died in our place. And he has risen from the dead. He is Lord. Believe it. Baptize and, uh, repent for your sins and be baptized in his name. That's the gospel message. The resurrection. Check out Acts chapter 2. What does Peter say? The resurrection. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 4. Resurrection, resurrection. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 17. Resurrection, resurrection. That's the basis for our Christian faith. And if, if our basis for the Christian faith is that it makes us feel good, or if, if our friends are Christians, that's why I'm Christian. If that's our foundation for the Christian faith, I challenge you to consider whether you're actually a believer or not. I'm not saying you're not, but I challenge you to consider whether that's the case. If you are a Christian because you think God is then going to give you something good in this life. Oh, I'm a Christian because God is going to give me the things I want. The prosperity gospel, let's say, for a moment. I'm a Christian because God's going to shower me with money. I would challenge you to consider Jesus' words. He says that you cannot serve both God and money. Or let's just take that up a notch. If you're a Christian because you think God's going to give you something, not in this life, but in the next... I'm a Christian so that I can go to heaven. I'm a Christian so that God will give me eternal salvation. I challenge you to consider your Christian faith. If you're a Christian because you look at Jesus and you look at God and you say, I cannot help but worship that being who's full of glory and who's done what he has done for me. If that is why you're a Christian and that is the thing that gets you up in the morning and calls you to your knees when you sin and pulls you forward to share the gospel when you see the world around you and the suffering in the world around you, if that is your existential driving force, then I believe you are sanctified into the ministry of God. Again, I'm not judging you. I really am not. But I'm just saying, how can we look at who we are and what we believe and what drives us and what that tells us about what we believe? And I worry about those who become Christian because at the end they think they're going to get something out of it. Because Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 tells us that Jesus says, Not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, belongs in the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Jesus will say to many who called him Lord and did miracles in his name. So now we're saying Jesus says that there are people who call him Lord and are miracle workers in the name of Jesus. And he will say on that day, I never knew you. Get away from me. So do we know Jesus? That's what it's all about. If Jesus has died on the cross and has risen from the dead and has claimed to be God, that's the Christian message and it's true. And I studied these things as a Muslim. I realized they actually did happen. I turned my eyes to Islam. I looked at the Islamic message. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, the shahada, the, the proclamation that you need to recite in order to become a Muslim is just the first part of Islam. There are four other pillars of Islam. There's five other articles of Islamic faith that you have to believe. I started investigating the basis for Islam to see whether or not it was true. And I realized that everything I had ever said about the Christian message, that it had been changed over time, that there was no basis for it, that it was ridiculous, 
that you really can't understand it. I realized ultimately that was true for Islam, not for Christianity. Islam is built on historical records that come 250 years after Muhammad's time. The Quran has an intense history of uniform editing. All the, literally, all the Qurans were collected and destroyed, and one final version was sent out. That has, that's actually according to the Islamic records, and every sheikh you speak, out, speak to out there will, will agree that that's happened. And so my world turned topsy-turvy, and I realized that the Christian faith is the one that has all the evidence behind it, not the Islamic faith. And so now, I'm taking, I'm taking a moment to consider whether this faith is worth leaving everything. Because my family loved me, and I was a leader in the Islamic community. I mean, as far as, I was a youth leader at the time, and whenever there was no elder who was there, I would lead the Jummah prayers, I would be the one who would give the khutbah, the sermon, I would do the exegesis and the tafsir on the hadith, that's what I would do. And here I am considering leaving that. Now, remember, our, our society, in Pakistan especially, is very male-centric. The firstborn son is the one who takes care of that family, who's the one who brings honor to the family. And here I am considering leaving Islam for Christianity, what kind of shame am I going to bring to my mother and my father who've done nothing but love me their entire lives and sacrificed for me their entire lives? What am I about to do to them? Is this faith worth it? And everything I had built in the Islamic community, all my friends, was it worth leaving them? And who knows what future? Right in 2004, a Muslim family had converted to Christ had accepted the gospel, and within the whole year, within the year, the whole family had been stabbed to death in New Jersey in 2004 because they accepted Christ and proclaimed Christ. The law of apostasy that Muslims can die for leaving their faith still applies. Not as frequently in the West, thank the Lord, but it still applies and in the Middle East especially, and all around the world, oh yeah, you need to pick up your cross if you're going to follow Christ. Is it worth it? Is it worth laying down your life? Is Matthew 13 true? That the kingdom of God is like a pearl that is so valuable that it's worth selling your whole life just to have that pearl. I tell you this, if you do, if you do go and leave everything for the sake of that pearl, you're not going to leave that at a moment's notice. If you have sacrificed for the Lord, you will not just turn and leave him on a whim. He will anchor you. I asked the Lord to guide me. I asked him for visions and dreams because in our society, in Muslim society, people are constantly guided by visions and dreams. My father had so many prophetic dreams growing up, it would take me hours to tell you all the stories. So I asked God for visions and dreams to show me what the truth was and the Lord showed me through one vision and three dreams that Christianity was a true path. And I accepted it. I accepted the message. And the next day after I accepted it and told my parents, I saw my father, a 24-year veteran in the U.S. Navy, cry for the first time. He spoke the most sincere words to me he's ever spoken, which is that, Nabil, on this day I feel as if my backbone has been ripped out from inside me. He considered me his backbone. And I did that to him. And as soon as he said that, he took my mother to the hospital. 
because she was having chest pain. And so the next morning, and for every day for months after that, I could not get up off the ground until the Lord had granted me the strength. And hours and hours I spent in prayer, asking God to give me the strength to get through the day. Because everything I had loved and everything that had loved me had just walked out of my life. And I challenged God. I said, why did you not kill me the moment I believed? Because I have just brought more pain to my parents than they have ever deserved. And I have no joy anymore. And it was in that moment of prayer that in my heart I heard the words. Because it is not about you. And all of a sudden, even though I had accepted these truths that Jesus had died on the cross, rose from the dead, and claimed to be God, I, I, I accepted that, all of a sudden it came together in one moment. I got up from that spot, I walked out the door, and I saw the world in a completely different light. I saw a person who was working down the street, walking down the street, something I'd seen a million times before. And at that moment, instead of seeing a person walking down the street, I saw someone that my God was willing to die for. Can, can we grapple with that for just a moment? All right, as a Muslim, I had never considered that God would get off His throne and enter into this world. That is disgusting. This world is sinful. It's a horrible place. It's a place of pain and suffering. But God, stepping into this world, stop and think about it. God created the universe. He is strong enough to create a star. These stars are massive. They burn for millions of years. They give off immense amounts of heat and radiation. And they, they, they're able to produce life. And God can think them into existence and not just can, but did. Every single star that you see in the sky, from one expanse of the universe to the other, God created them with just a thought. And then He turned His same mind and thought about you. And then he said, I love this person. And I'm going to give them hands and feet, even though they're going to use those hands to sin against me and use those feet to walk away from me. I'm going to give them hands and feet because I love them. And I know exactly what they're going to do. And because of what they're going to do, I'm going to have to come into this world as a child be born to two children who've just been accused of an illegitimate relationship. Children who had to suffer, who had nothing. Not rich people. Born as a child to two children, then had to work as a carpenter his whole life, sweat and blood and tears, until finally he's able to get some disciples who follow him. He spends his life with them for three years, and then they turn and betray him, one of them with a kiss, to the point where he's finally taken and put on a cross, the most humiliating and painful way to die that has ever been devised in all of history. That is what my God was willing to do for me? And I'm going to take a look at this person walking down the street and just let them go and not tell them about the hope that they have, that what they're learning in the schools is only a part of the message, 
not tell them about who God is and what He has done for them and that He has given them hope, that He loves them so much, He's given them a purpose, a way out, healing, eternal value. God has given them all that. How can I not tell this person about the glory and beauty of God and what He has done for us? And this is the truth that the world testifies to. Why believe falsehood? Why believe that there's nothing but science? No, science testifies to God. Why believe that there's nothing but experience? Experience is only full when done in the way of God. We shackle ourselves to drugs, to alcohol. We shackle ourselves to sex and pornography. Thinking we're free. No, freedom isn't following God. He's come for freedom, and for freedom's sake, He has set us free. It only makes sense if we keep our eyes on Jesus and understand He is our foundation. That is the answer. That's why it's the answer. We can test it. We can see it's true. We can look into history see it's true. We can test it with our eyes around us. Look at the people around you too and ask yourself the question, who is it that I want to be like? Who is it that I want to follow? You read the story of Christ. Every person in every society respects Him. But the people that I've seen here now are the ones who are giving their lives to Christ because they find the value and the foundation. They're following Christ. Follow them as they follow Christ. And here we have Dr. Tour, who is a man of God. I'm so blessed to be able to share this moment, to have gotten this from him. I just pray that as, as I go from here, and this is the only time I had to speak with you, and I wish I could speak with you every weekend. Um, and, and just point you to the Lord because He's awesome. Um, and that you'd point me to the Lord too because He's awesome. Um, but I pray that if, you know, whatever questions we might have or whatever discussions we might want to have, that we would have them over the next few moments and hours so that you would think on them and whatnot. But don't let these issues go. And if you need someone to talk to, Dr. Tour is here. And he wants to talk to you and help you. His wife, Auntie Shadeen, is here. Go speak with her. Let them pour into you. There's other believers who are here who are phenomenal. Reach out. Talk to them. If you have questions, don't let them fester. Okay, just because an infection is underneath the surface doesn't mean it's not destroying what's on the inside. Don't hide them. Don't cover them up. Let them out. Air them. Talk about them. Explore your doubts. But this is where life is. This is where purpose is. This is where joy is. It's in Jesus. So the answer to the question, why Jesus, is because He is the truth and He is the only way. He is the only way. Let's pray. God, You are absolutely amazing. That you would have loved us so much that despite your death on the cross, you created us anyway. And who are we? God, apart from you, we're sinners. Half of us in this room are not willing to talk about what we did last night. Came to church the next morning. You love us anyway. God, it's the beauty of your message that you know everything about us and that we are base and depraved. I know myself and I know it's true. 
Yet at the same time, you are so holy that you love us, knowing everything that we are, you love us anyway. And your word tells us that before time began, you placed each of us in a specific place and time so that we might reach out to you and perhaps find you. Even though you're not far from any of us. God, thank you that you did that. I pray here for myself, and I pray here for my brothers and sisters, that we would be given your great mercy and grace, that you would clear the obstacles before us, Lord, that we would just run to you. And if ever we have the inclination to walk away, that you would just hold us, draw us back, that you'd put obstacles in our path. Because you are life. All things that are good in this world are good because you are those things. You're the source of life, so life is good. You're the source of beauty, so beauty is good. You're the source of generosity, of mercy. So those things are good. We want you, God. I pray that some of my brothers and sisters here right now would, along with me, recommit ourselves to you. That you would bring people into our lives that would keep us from stumbling. That we would be open and transparent with mentors and friends that we would shine a light in the dark areas of our thoughts and lives because it is in the light that they will be fixed. God, we invite you to change us forever at this moment. We pray this in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Amen.